Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, pretty exciting day because we are going to be talking to Naomi Klein. She just She's the uh, famous leftist author who wrote The Shock Doctrine, which was a critique of what she calls disaster capitalism and how crises are used to basically elites use crises to do whatever they want to do in terms of ram through agendas that they want, whether it's invade Iraq, uh, uh, war profiteering or, you know, whatever. There's a, the, the subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession with the bailouts of Wall Street enriching people who are giant political donors, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Great author. And she wrote this phenomenal book that you and I are both in the midst of reading right now called Doppelganger to give everybody the, the gist of it. Basically, sh- her name is Naomi Klein. There's this woman named Naomi Wolf who's also sort of this political academic. I use the term academic very loosely. Mm -hmm. And Naomi Wolf has become like the bastardized right-wing conspiracy theorist version of Naomi Klein. And she had to sit there throughout the pandemic watching this person rise tremendously in prominence, go on Steve Bannon's show all the time, uh, surpass her in terms of, you know, uh, I want to say recognizability, but I don't think that's the word. I guess. (laughs) Clout, yeah, I guess you could say clout, right? And so she almost facilitated like an identity crisis in her where she's like, Jesus, like what is going on? Cause now she would get confused all the time for Naomi Wolf and all of her mentions would be like, I hate you. You sell out what became of you or the opposite that was based when you called out the microchip and the vaccine. So really, really interesting book. I highly recommend everybody read it. We're going to be talking to her about it today. Really excited for that. Yeah. Cause she uses it not just to talk about her own experience in this, but to tease out because the other Naomi, Naomi Wolf originally started this as this like Democratic, liberal, feminist. Feminist writer, yeah. And then made this transition as others have made this weird transition. So she's trying to... To the anti-establishment right. She's trying to unpack what's going on there, what it says about the moment we're living in, how COVID accelerated, etc. So... She's, you know, the doppelganger is like the starting point, but there's a lot more about her, our very weird political moment that she digs into. It's Absolutely. a great book. Yeah. It's a great book. Now, before we get to that, though, so I don't know if you saw this yet, Crystal, but there's this new campaign ad that's going viral that Andy Bashir, the governor of Kentucky, who's running for a second term, um, he released this against his opponent. Have you seen this yet? Yes. Okay. We watched it together, babe. Oh, that's right. Sorry. My brain doesn't <laughs> work. My brain doesn't work. But anyway, uh, you guys are going to see it. And let me tell you something. God damn, son. This is devastating. Watch. I was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. This is to you, Daniel Cameron. To tell a 12-year-old girl she must have the baby of her stepfather who raped her is unthinkable. I'm speaking out because women and girls need to have options. Daniel Cameron would give us none. Brutal. Okay, listen, this is this is one of the ways that you do politics effectively, right? What you do is you take like the most absurd and extreme position of your opponent and you hammer away on it. And that's exactly what this is. It almost reminds me of, remember when Obama was running against Mitt Romney and he ran a very economically populist campaign in 2012. Yeah. And he had this uh, ad where apparently Mitt Romney was uh, had was a huge investor, like the number one investor in some company. And that company was outsourcing jobs to either Mexico or China. I don't remember the specifics. And Obama and his team went to the people who were getting laid off, these American workers, these American factory workers who were getting laid off. And they recorded a video of them talking about their experience. And they were basically like, they had us build a stage so that management could come and tell us we're losing all of our jobs. I felt like I was building my own coffin. Yes. I remember watching that going... Yep. Damn, son, that was, is a devastating ad. This it is the was same part thing. of Mitt Romney's track record while he was at Bain Capital. Bain Capital. That's what it was about. But That's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I used to live in Kentucky. I'm very interested in the politics there. And um, what is incredible to me to look at is Republicans have been destroying Democrats on abortion in that state for a long time. This is a state that actually held on to a Democratic legislature much longer than other Southern and Appalachian states. I don't think it didn't flip till after 2016, I think. And um, one of the issues that was relentlessly used to destroy Democrats that Democrats would run away from, there were plenty of uh, pro-life Democrats still in the state house, et cetera, was abortion. So now to see it be turned on its head in an instant because of the Dobbs decision is really quite extraordinary. And you'll recall 
Kentucky actually, uh, I think it was last year, had a ballot initiative asking voters whether they wanted to change the state constitution and enshrine that you could, um, that nothing in the constitution would, um, could be construed as like protecting uh, abortion rights or choice. And Kentucky voters took the pro-choice side on that ballot initiative. So they have in real time seen that this issue is effective, even in a state that is, you know, very conservative, very culturally conservative, even in Kentucky, this 12 year old, I mean, it's absolutely devastating. It's interesting too, because, um, so you mentioned Andy Bashir. he's already the governor there. He's one of the most popular governors in the whole country. And it's a red state and he's a Democratic governor. And his opponent, Daniel Cameron, who's the current AG, is um, very close Mitch McConnell protege. Like he's the person who really, you know, brought him along and um, he's, you know, seen as a, a real mentor to him. So that is noteworthy as well. But um, Kentucky oftentimes, because their elections are in off years, can end up being a real bellwether or canary in the coal mine for what happens at the national level. It happened in 2015 when they elected this Republican, very Trumpy, like businessman Republican named Matt Bevin, in spite of the fact the polls had the Democrat up by quite a lot. And then on election day, huge surprise, Matt Bevin ends up winning. And it could happen again this time. Right now, the current governor, Democratic Governor Andy Bashir, um, is up by nine points in the polling. So he has a sizable lead according to the polls. And, um, you know, I think this is just absolutely devastating. We just had some special elections in Pennsylvania, I think, though, and elsewhere where Democrats won by quite a bit. Yeah, and so, that's continuing with the trend of all the previous special elections that we've had in modern in modern day. Because, look, I think the biggest thing, abortion is a huge one, yeah. right? That's huge to people. Ohio, Kansas, these are red states. And yeah. they voted overwhelmingly for abortion rights. Yes. So um, Democrats have outperformed by an average of 11 points That's in these special elections. Unbelievably huge. The two this week, there was one in Pennsylvania. It was in a blue district, so they were kind of expected to win. The other one was in New Hampshire. That state, the movement from R to D was like 18 points. So it's a it was a Trump district. Um, it's supposed to be like vote six points more Republican than the national average. And the Democrat, I think, ended up winning by like 12 points. And that gets me it wasn't my, close. my second point, which is I, I think Trump is a big part of it, too. Abortion is a big issue now for the elections. But I also think Trump is still a giant issue for the elections. And, you know, I look at this uh, ad from Bashir and I'm like, for the love of God, Joe Biden, can you start doing some of this yeah. type of stuff? For the, yeah, your that's opponent, a great point. Your opponent has 91 criminal charges and four indictments against him. And I've never heard Joe Biden say 91 criminal charges and four indictments because he's afraid that like the right already has this idea that he's behind all the indictments, bro. And if he says it, then it's even more obvious he's behind it. And it's like, who cares? It's a fact. There are 91 criminal charges and four indictments. People are going to hear that and go, wow, there's a lot of smoke there. Maybe there's fire there. I would bring that up. I would bring up the fact that Trump repeatedly says, I want to suspend the Constitution. I'd hammer him over the head with that. I mean, what a ridiculous thing to say in terms of modern American politics. You want to suspend the Constitution? The Republicans were supposed to be the party of Constitution humpers, <laughs> and you're saying you want to suspend it. And then the other <laughs> thing is, how many times has Trump come out there to try to stave off the far right on the issue of abortion, where he's like, I'm the reason Roe versus Wade was overturned. That's it. Run Quote in ad, Donald Trump, I'm the reason Roe versus Wade was overturned. That's just like this Andy Bashir yeah. ad, right? Yeah. Well, and um, I know Andy Bashir a, a little bit. Kentucky's a, a small world, especially on the Democratic political side, and very, very nice guy. But he's not like he's not like super charisma guy. So he's That's like Biden. Not him. <laughs> he's like Biden. And so the comparison is kind of apt. I mean, he's a young guy, so there's no concerns about like his age or anything like that. Um, he's comparatively young, but yeah, he's not gonna win based on the force of his personality or like giving some you know great oratory speech, whatever. And so he, in this election, it appears to have been very effective and reflected in polls where he's increasingly pulling away, it looks like, from Daniel Cameron. And very effective last time around when he initially won this seat. Um, it was on, after the uh, Red for Ed teacher strikes. He was very clear. He really stuck, stuck to bread and butter. It was teachers' pensions. It was wages. It was health insurance. It was, you know, very material, very pocketbook. That's what enables him to get in. I think he's stuck with this mo that model as governor. That's part of why, even in this, you know, quote-unquote red state of Kentucky, literally has one of the highest approval ratings in the entire country. So there is a lot to learn there for sure. And ads like this are only going to help him. I would think so. I would definitely think so. All right, so now, Crystal, yes. uh, there's this clip of Howard Stern that's going viral. And, you know, in, in right-wing land, they're using it to, like, beat up on him and be like, ha-ha, what an idiot. 
but you know, I've also seen other reactions to it as well. Curious what you think of it. Let's take a look. I kind of take that as a compliment that I'm woke. I'll tell you how I um, feel about it. To me, the opposite of woke is being asleep. And if woke means I can't get behind Trump, which is what I think it means, or that I support people who want to be transgender or I'm for the vaccine, dude, call me woke as you fucking want. I'm not for stupidity. You know, I ran out Friday morning. I was over at CVS. Thank you, CVS. I went over there 9 a.m. and got myself that new vaccine for COVID. So my take on this is it's indicative of the fact that we absolutely have hit peak anti-wokeness because, you know, and you talked about this quite a bit as well. There was a poll that came out which showed that, like, even among Republican voters, the notion of, like, wokeness and all the issues around it are polling very, very low. Yeah. Like, nobody cares about trans people. Nobody, like, all these things are minuscule compared to material issues. And what you saw is Vivek Ramaswamy, who was running as the anti-woke guy, Mm -hmm. and Ron DeSantis, who was running Mm -hmm. as the anti-woke guy. After that poll came out, they all switched on a dime. I haven't heard them say the word woke since. Yeah. And then now you get, you know, Howard Stern, who certainly lost a lot of clout and prominence from his heyday back in the 1990s when everybody cared every little word he said. But now you see something like this. I don't think anybody would have said this two years ago. Mm. I don't think anybody would. Actually, I'm proudly woke. That's not something that you would have heard. And he goes, actually, I am proudly woke. He says the opposite of woke is asleep. And he defines it as if you're saying I'm anti-Trump. Hell yeah, I'm anti-Trump. You're saying I support trans people. Hell yeah, I support trans people. You're saying I I support the vaccine and think it works. Hell yeah, I support the vaccine and think it works. Yeah. To me, it's indicative of the fact that like everyone has a different definition for what this word means, Mm -hmm. which is part of what it made it not have political potency. I mean, Trump kind of identified this even as he would back bash wokeness. He also said like, ah, nobody really knows what it means. (laughs) And so because Howard Stern, like what is he known? for being the over the top, vulgar, raunchy shock jock, which is definitely the opposite of being overly political, politically correct, which was kind of the original idea, negative idea of wokeness. So for the him then to turn around and embrace the term like, hell yeah, I'm woke. To me, it just it is indicative of the fact that it is a word that has no content or no meaning or at least no shared content or meaning and has become sort of like utterly politically useless. I do think, though, it became to mean what he's describing it as, which is like the catch-all boogeyman for people on the right. Anything that's vaguely related to the left or liberals or Democrats is woke. Yeah. That's wh- how I think it came to be used. The original idea of it, there's a positive connotation and a negative connotation definition. The positive one, I'd say, is alert to injustice. That's the way it was originally used in a positive sense. The way it was originally used in a negative sense is authoritarianism in defense of perceived social justice. Yeah. Right. So those are the two, those are the two different definitions. The way he's using it is more how it came to be used, which is, you know, this this is woke. That is woke. Everybody's woke. My grandma's woke. The, the military's woke. You're woke on a boat. You're woke with a goat. Like, <laughs> that's how it came to be used, right? Yeah. And so he's like, okay, if you want to define it as, anti, you know, I'm anti-Trump, yes. And look, on that front, it's like, if that is the definition you're going with, then absolutely I would say I'm woke too. If you say the definition is the being authoritarian in defense of perceived social justice, like banning speakers who say messed up things, then I would say I'm not woke. Then I would say I'm anti-woke. Exactly. Which is why, again, I think the word has become like sort of worthless and meaningless. Because if every time you use a word, you have to define what it means to you in that moment. And by this definition, I mean it. And by that definition, I don't. Then how is this even useful, a useful term for us in terms of the political lexicon at this point? Yeah. And I mean, I also think everything eventually comes back to where people what people really care about, which is material interests. And so you could try to spark up culture war stuff as much as you want, but you end up ultimately looking ridiculous. Look at the people over on the Daily Wire. They can't go seven seconds without talking about trans people Mm -hmm. and they look ridiculous and they look stupid. You got people like Michael Knowles calling for mass arrest at Pride Parade. In defense of Lauren Boebert, who was jacking somebody off in a movie theater or in a theater at Beetlejuice. (laughs) Somehow the jacking off in public is fine, but you can't have trans people exist in public. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think that it's like, here's the thing. The anti-woke crusaders started to embody all of the qualities and characteristics that they claimed they hated about the woke. Yes. The whole idea was, oh, you're too woke. You're going to care about like a female video game characters tits. 
That's so stupid. You want to control people? That's like woke nonsense. But then it became on the anti-woke side. It's like, you have a black character in Star Wars? <laughs> yeah. Or, like, yeah. Or how could you, how dare you make the Little Mermaid black or whatever? Right. It's like, well, there who was, gives a fuck? <laughs> there's this term, woke scold, right? Where mm-hmm. it's like the ideas, you're like the school mom, you're constantly policing, like looking for word infractions or whatever. And yeah, they have taken on those characteristics That's right. of constantly like, oh my God, the map in Barbie was not right. And I didn't like how this character talked about this thing. And, oh, Snow White. Did you see the latest Snow White controversy? And and so it's very unappealing. I mean, it's very unappealing to have a group of people who's constantly policing and obsessing over these minor, trivial, identity-based details. Yeah, like if you're talking about Disney movies and video games and you think it's like serious political commentary— Go fuck yourself, right? (laughs) Like, really? Fucking Disney movies, and you're like, I'm morally grandstanding on the Disney issue. What the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. What are you talking about? You got anything to say about tax rates or unions or war or anything that actually matters? Or, like, the biggest problem facing our children is, like, the My Special Unicorn book in the library or whatever it is that they're Uh, freaking out against. Oh, God. So, yeah, I mean, I think this commentary from uh, Stern, like, a year or two ago, people would have been like, what an idiot. But now you hear it, and you're like, I get what he's saying. Yeah. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. So... Indeed. All right, let's get into our interview now. Very excited to talk to Naomi Klein, uh, author of new book, Doppelganger, and uh, also author of many other great books, including The Shock Doctrine. Great leftist author and activist. Here she is. Naomi Klein, so great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. Of course. So um, just set up for people the very peculiar life situation that has been unfolding for you that uh, kind of dragged you kicking and screaming to write this book? (laughs) Um, So the book starts from the premise that I have a doppelganger, a person I have been perennially confused and conflated with for really 15 years now. Uh, It used to be an occasional annoyance that, you know, it happened every month or so. I would go online and people would be very angry about to, at, at me about something I did not understand. <laughs> and then I would reverse engineer it and realize, oh, Naomi Wolf, another Naomi writer of nonfiction books, uh, looks a little bit like me, I guess. Um, also, you know, writes books about big ideas and and often takes on powerful elites. Her, her, her book that she's, you know, made her name around was a book called The Beauty Myth that came out when I was in university. Um, but so it would happen occasionally. It wasn't that big a deal, although it was often around issues like where I disagreed with her politically. So it was, um, you know, it was uncomfortable. For instance, she had a whole theory that like Edward Snowden was still a spy. And I didn't like people thinking that I thought that, for instance, or mm. she was like, you know, really worked up about 5G and things like that. So you know, she was getting more and more into conspiratorial world. But she was more of a conspiracy dabbler than a full-time kind of conspiracy influencer. But during COVID, that changed. And she sort of took a star turn uh, to the right, where she was she was uh, um, basically opposed to every uh, public health measure in response to the virus. Um, and she started talking very in very conspiratorial terms about how this was maybe a plot by the Chinese government and the Davos elites to bring in a new world order. Or maybe it was the work of the devil. Um, and because she had been such a prominent a figure in the Democratic Party in the 90s. She had advised Al Gore on how to attract women voters. Um, she had been married to a White House speech writer for the Clinton administration. Um, people like Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson were delighted to be able to put her um, in front of their, their, their cameras uh, and really wind up this idea that there's, you know, a, a Democrat, a feminist who is saying that Joe Biden is trying to engineer a coup, which is what she was saying on their shows. So, um, yeah, it was a weird situation for me because because I would log in you know, this is kind of second year of the pandemic, uh, or late in the first year, and every day there would be thousands of uh, of of uh, identity confusion moments. And so, at first, I was horrified by it, and then I thought, actually, this is kind of an interesting way into the vertigo of our political moment, where so many of us are trying to figure out, like, are people what they seem? Who can we trust? Why are people changing their political views so dramatically? 
So, you know, Crystal, she's more a literary device than she is the subject of the book. She's yeah. she's like the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland leading me down the rabbit hole. But the book is much more about the rabbit hole than it is about this one figure. For sure. So first of all, uh, we're in the midst of reading your book right now. I absolutely love it. And I highly recommend people check it out. Um, I'd like to pat myself on the back a little bit because I have never confused Naomi Klein and Naomi Wolf. Thank you very much. In fact, in my world, there Thank was only you very much. <laughs> there was only Naomi Klein in my world as as a lefty and understanding the shock doctrine and everything. And there was, Naomi Wolf was like, "Who's this?" But like, I don't even know who this is. Forget that person. So here's my question for you: Do you think she is somewhat knowingly? doing this. And the reason that I ask that is because she seems to use the basic framework of the shock doctrine and then extrapolate it to absurd conclusions that you would never come to because you believe in evidence. And I think oftentimes she mm. like literally fabricates evidence. So do you think on some level she's almost like seeing what you're doing and then is like, let me do the bastardized version of this for a right wing audience? I don't think there's that level of intent. I have, you know, I have no reason to to believe that this is itself a conspiracy, although I have drafted <laughs> jokey versions of that tweet <laughs> and decided better uh, uh, around sending it. No, I, I, you know, I think it isn't only her, you know, uh, during during this period of vertigo and confusion, I have seen a lot of people um, do a bastardized version of the shock doctrine. And, and a lot of it focuses on the the great reset that um which is this uh phrase that the that the World Economic Forum started using about how the world should come out of covid with a great reset you know and it was just like a remix of everything that the World Economic Forum is always pushing and I've been critical of um you know it's digitization of life um you know it's 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 this sort of third industrial revolution stuff um you know, maybe like it's 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 the quote unquote sharing economy, but of course it's not about sharing. It's about a handful of tech companies getting very very even richer. Um, so she was not the only one who was casting this um, non hidden plan by the World Economic Forum as a vast conspiracy to lock you in your home forever and so on. So it wasn't just her. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that, right? Uh, you've you've seen th oh, these yeah. ideas coursing through the ether. Um, but yeah, it did feel very uncanny, right? Like like when I would see her on Fox talking to Tucker Carlson uh, about how under the guise of a medical emergency, there was this huge, uh, uh, you know, an attempt to have a coup in the United States. It did feel like, you know, the ideas in the shock doctrine had been put in a Vitamix blender um, and like mixed in with some like bananas and acai and that, and then Tucker Carlson was like, thinking it was just delicious and nodding. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just like a weird, a weird moment. But, you know, like I feel like, I feel like the world is weird right now. A lot of us have that weird feeling, you know, and, yeah. and I think some people are like, did Naomi Klein really write a book about doppelgangers? That doesn't sound like a Naomi Klein book. And it is off brand. I, I grant that. But, you know, it's a weirder book for our weirder times. <laughs> and, and it is an attempt to map, to map some of these strange alliances. And to me, it's, it's less interesting what what she what Wolf is getting out of these alliances with figures like Bannon and Carlson. She's obviously getting a huge audience, and she had lost her audience on the left uh, over many many factual errors, among other things. Then I'm interested in what they're getting out of her. You know what what they're getting out of uh, out of spreading these kinds of conspiracies that I don't believe they think are true, but I think they're wonderful distractions from what I would describe as the conspiracies in plain view, right? Which yes. is right. what you're covering yes. all the time. Yeah, and, and that's the interesting thing about conspiracy culture. And I'm I'm really careful not to call it conspiracy theories because they really are not theories. They are all over the map. They contradict each other. You know, one minute COVID is a bioweapon that's been cooked up in a lab in order to depopulate the earth. And the next minute, why are you even wearing a mask? It's just a bad cold. And it's like, well, if it's a bioweapon, shouldn't we try to protect ourselves? <laughs> um, but, you know, what's interesting about it is that there's no shortage of massive elite scandals that if we decided to stay focused on and organized around we could have like a real rooted popular uprising. I mean, you know, if you look at the UAW strike right now, you see an example of, you know, a left left economic populism that can really yes. mobilize people. So I don't think it's a mystery why figures like Bannon or Musk or Trump himself would rather have people chasing their tails in conspiracy land, you know, always about to prove the next big thing, right? 
Yeah. Well, I want to come back to the UAW piece because I think it's really relevant the way Trump Mm -hmm. is talking about it and, you know, versus the reality, et cetera. But I also want to get to the core of what you're arguing here, because as you said, you know, the book is not really about the other Naomi. The other Naomi is used as a device to delve into this weird, whether you want to call it like political horseshoe or mirror world or down the rabbit hole, however you want to describe it. That we've all witnessed, I mean, certainly people that we know who used to, we used to really understand where they were ideologically, and it's like, how'd you end up over here? Where do you think this comes from? Do you think it's a pandemic-era phenomenon? Do you think it was just sort of, like, accelerated by the pandemic, like many things were? Like, describe the actual thing. Yeah, it definitely was accelerated by the pandemic, but there were were seeds pre-pandemic, and now that the the org the, the the policies that catalyzed these new political configurations are no longer in place like mask mandates vaccine mandates uh you know vaccine verification apps lockdowns this it's not it's not disappearing it's looking for it's like a heat seeking missile deciding okay where are we going to get that kind of energy again can it be banning you know, trans healthcare. Can it be? Uh, can it be climate change denial or some idea that climate change is the next plot to lock you in your house? And there's been a lot of organizing around both of those from many of these same people. I don't like the term the horseshoe theory. I do not agree with the horseshoe theory. I don't believe that the far left and the far right meet at their farthest reaches. Um, uh, I, and my chapter about this is, is called "The Far Out Meets the Far." the far right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and by far out, you know, I'm, I, I'm thinking more about, um, you know, people who already had some pretty fantastical beliefs about uh, their ability to have better immune systems than everybody else, uh, a kind of a belief in magic sometimes. And, you know, look, I can get a little witchy. I'm going <laughs> to be honest here. Um, but I think where it gets dangerous is, um, And in the book, I talk about political diagonalism as opposed to the horseshoe theory, which is a phrase that comes from two political scientists, William Callison and Quince Libidian, who were tracking this in Europe and this alliance between people who believed in a holism, a kind of spiritual holism. Many were small business owners whose um, yoga studios closed down during the pandemic, but had these ideas about sort of uh, about about wellness that somehow tipped into, I have a superior body than you, right? Like I take care of my body. I eat clean food. I work out. And so maybe if you're getting sick, that's on you, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's, so I think that that's where a lot of the the nexus of of left and right came together because, and and the reason why I don't like horseshoe theory is because when you think about the far left, uh, you know, I think about Marxists and socialists and people who have a theory of capitalism, who people who have a theory of power. And many people like that are pretty well inoculated against conspiracy culture because they understand, well, no, this isn't a conspiracy. This is kind of capitalism doing what it was this designed to do. This is the whole thing, that, yes. Yeah, and so, sometimes it takes a conspiracy to do it, like overthrowing Salvador Allende's government in Chile, but it's not because you want to you know, drain children of their adrenochrome. It's because, you know, a, an American copper mining interest wants to make sure it can still make a lot of money in Chile. So it's it's just, you know, they're, they're a little bit more prosaic conspiracies, if you will. Um, yeah. So first of all, as soon as we came across the term diagonalism in your book, I looked at Crystal and I was like, oh, that's it. That's like the word I've been looking for to describe it. And now I have a term I can can apply to it. So I love that you you laid that out for us. And, you know, I want to take a stab at what you, you were talking about before, Crystal. And I'm curious what your reaction is, Naomi, that to me, when I look at that um, phenomenon, it looks to me like it's like a blind anti-establishment posturing, but completely unmoored to, as you were alluding to, theory, and also completely unmoored to evidence. And so to give some example of that, you know, you guys were talking about the World Economic Forum and Davos, and they have these like three or four uh, layer deep conspiracies 
that get ridiculous and involve adrenochrome and all sorts of. They're going to make know, us all eat bugs. And, yeah, and they're yeah. you know they're using baby's blood to keep themselves young or whatever. When the real conspiracy is is out in the open, is that they're effectively status quo defenders and they care first and foremost about profit and they'll do anything to stay, uh, you know, on top. And another good example, and Crystal, you can speak to this one, and I can as well. I remember covering Bill Gates very critically um, during the pandemic, but my line of argument was like, look, this guy's a patent shark, and as a result of him, there's going to be all these people in the developing world that are not going to be able to get the vaccine because they're trying to profit first and foremost. But in the mirror world, that got... uh, twisted into like actually the vaccine is bad and and you know there's microchips in the vaccine and the people who don't take the vaccine are actually the ones who are standing up to the establishment or something and so i think that's what happens when you get this like and a lot of it has to do with the online posturing right this like i'm i'm the most pure i'm the most anti-establishment but if you're unmoored from theory and evidence then you end up in this really really weird place Exactly. That, and that's such a good example, because I think in the early days of the pandemic, a lot of us were focused on the drug patents, on the patents on the vaccines that should never have been there, right? Uh, many many of these vaccines were only developed because of huge public you know, investments of public money. And uh, the profits were wholly because governments were buying them, right? So uh, the, you know, it's, 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 it's a process we've seen again and again, where you take something that was developed in the public sphere with public money and all of the profits go to uh, you know, a small group of players. But you know, when I talk about the mirror world, it's not just about what they are doing. It's also about what we on the other side of the glass, you know, I'm, I'll put air quotes around we, because obviously there are differences around you know, who, who, who might consider themselves part of that we, but we who see this as you know, a wild conspiracy. No, no one's forcing you to eat bugs. No, the vaccines don't have microchips in order to track you. Um, but once they started talking about Bill Gates all the time and the World Economic Forum all the time, a lot of you know, centrist liberals, but also a significant numbers of, of self-described leftists mainly were just saying, you know, roll up your sleeve and get vaccinated, wear your mask, and sort of stopped talking about that global vaccine apartheid on the world stage and going right. after Bill Gates and going after pandemic profiteering. And then that seeds territory over to the right. And that is like a gift to the Steve Bannon of, of the Bannons of the world, who is now suddenly able to, to position himself as the great a champion of the people against big pharma, uh, right. which he most certainly is not. But you know, when you, it's very dangerous to see political political territory. So that's you know, that's when I kind of decided. Well, this is a book. You know, it's not like a little essay, and it's not like just about me and other Naomi. There's this kind of mirror dance going on where we are all becoming way too reactive. Like if they're for something, we're against it. If they think that that COVID may have come from a lab, that's unsayable over here, right? And we said that's right. you know that's another example. Or if they're talking about the, some of the problems with extended school closures, we are just not willing to listen at all to any of the reason to any of the critiques. And um, that reactivity, I think, is is, is just politically poisonous uh, uh, and really serves rising authoritarianism. There's another side to that, too, though, which makes it so complex. Just to continue on the Bill Gates example, because Mm -hmm. I remember this is back when we were doing Rising and I did a monologue about Bill Gates focused on this exact vaccine patent issue and it blew up millions Mm -hmm. of views, millions of views. And I knew, I mean, I was happy that it performed well because I thought it was a really important issue. I wanted to get more eyeballs on it. But I also but knew Bill, in the back. You, you put Bill Gates and you, you tagged it, right? Of course, yes. And so yeah. I knew mm-hmm. in my mind that some of the people that were coming here for the Bill Gates patent content had a lot of other completely unfounded, like wild, insane, baseless conspiracies about Bill Gates, which was the real reason that they showed up. And so it did make me a little reluctant of like, am I feeding into that by doing this kind of content, even though I think this issue is really important? Or am I like illuminating them to what is the real actual thing going on with Bill Gates that we should all be concerned about? And I still don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, I had a similar experience where I was unsure whether I could even write about Bill Gates because I was getting perennially confused already with, with other Naomi. And she was amplifying all of the conspiracies about Bill Gates. I'm just like, and you know, the algorithms are confusing us. Like it's just turning into such a mess, right? Because you add machine learning to this and then it's automated. The confusion is automated, right? Um, But what I would say is, 
I mean, first of all, good on you, Crystal, for not just clout chasing. Uh, once you realize that if you talked about Bill Gates in conspiratorial terms, you could probably get a lot more followers because I watched other people go down that road. I like, I'll, I'll talk about Russell Brand uh, very much in the news, but you know, I had a kind of personal experience with this where, you know, Russell is somebody who saw his following absolutely explode uh, in, in the, during the pandemic because he got very good at putting those particular taglines, you know, in his, in his videos. Mm-hmm. And the, the first time he talked about Davos and the, and the Great Reset, he was reading a column by me in The Intercept saying, look, this is not a conspiracy. They have a website. Like they're very, you know, there's nothing new going on here. Yes, there's plenty to be upset, but it isn't a conspiracy. And Russell read my entire column uh, on on his YouTube stream. And because he put great reset, (laughs) the exact same thing happened to him as happened to you about Bill Gates. All he got, he got more views on that, I think, than anything he had done to that point on the pandemic. But instead of being uncomfortable with that crystal, he was like, wow, this is a clout mine. And then he went back and back and back to the Great Reset, but now cast in much more conspirator- conspiratorial terms. And in my view, saying things that I don't believe he really believed because you know he just a few days earlier, he was saying he agreed with me, mm-hmm. but now he's getting millions and millions of views and it's opening the flood, it's opening the doors to a whole new audience. So then you get audience capture, I guess is what I'm saying. And you really do need to um you you have to know what your values are and you have to be in it for the right reasons and not just be in it for the clicks and clout. Because if you are, there's a big incentive to uh to 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 spread misinformation. Yeah, I mean, in an attempt to answer your question, I would say like all you can do. And it feels like it's nowhere near enough, but it's the best we got is to give mm-hmm. all of the facts on both sides of the equation and then let the chips fall where they may. But to your point, Naomi, the reason why people who are smart and know better don't do that is because sometimes you do pay a price in terms of clout, in terms of likes, in terms of viewership. If you're willing mm-hmm. to say both parts, you could say, look, the real conspiracy is out in the open. It's the vaccine patents and the fact that they care about profit above all else. But at the same time, no, it's not a pandemic. No, there are not microchips in the vaccine. No, you don't have elites sucking the blood of babies like vampire. Like you have to be able to say all of those things and let the chips fall where they may. But oftentimes that leads to a backlash. And like you said, I think even just like intuitively, instinctually, people want to avoid the condemnation of a big crowd or, or the the dissent. And so they just end up taking the path of least resistance, which could be, you know, a harp away on Bill Gates being bad and the World Economic Forum being bad. But you can leave it in like vague terms where people can read into it too much, like you were saying, where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, no, actually, you know, Bill Gates is way worse than even what you're saying, Crystal. It's not just about the, the patents. It's also about, you know, whatever microchip nonsense, you know. How much of it do you think does come Mm -hmm. from, because, you know, as leftists, we think a lot in terms of systems. And so I've almost come to see like the individual personalities that we all could easily point to as less important than the reward, the underlying reward system. Because if the underlying reward system is such that like this is the type of content that's going to take off and get in front of millions of eyeballs, someone is going to come. Capitalism says someone is going to come in and fill that role, whether it was this particular cast of characters that did it or a different cast of characters that did it. So how much of it? is like the algorithmically driven social media sites and YouTube and all of that? Mm. It is all of that. And yeah. I think it's very tricky too, because you, you it's like a, a caricature of a movement. It's like, you know, I, in the book I say, it's like a doppelganger of the left, right? A lot of this conspiracy culture. And the other thing, one of the things that that this culture has is a very simple vision of what justice would look like, right? I mean, we've we've been making references to Adrenochrome and the QAnon cult, right? Um, but QAnon, you know, I say in the book that conspiracy culture gets the facts wrong, but the feelings right. So the feeling mm, of living in a point. world, yeah, and 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 so and so it becomes a kind of a bait and switch, and 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 Naomi Wolf. She really took off during the pandemic when she started to talk about how vaccine verification apps would 
um, you know, were this vast social, like Chinese style social credit system that, that the apps could hear your conversations, would track you everywhere you went, would you know what you were doing in your home. And the liberal response to that was, oh, wait till they hear about cell phones, right? Like this very sort of sneering dismissal, because of course the vaccine verification apps don't do all that, but we smart, smug liberals supposedly know that our cell phones do that. And, and what, like, what's the joke? We're okay with that. You know what I mean? Like, like, right. so, so you can see the appeal of conspiracy culture, because what they're saying is it's just this one app and we're going to fight it. And we're going to, you know, we have, we have, you know, send us, send us money, join our, join our crew. Um, we're going to get justice. We're going to send them to, to, to the Hague, right? We're going to have, we're going to have war crimes trials, right? I don't know if you've seen, you know, these slogans, like make, uh, make the Geneva conventions great again, things like that. But the point is that, that even outside of QAnon, where they have their, the idea of like the great storm and the white hats, they have a vision for justice. Like it isn't just that they're saying their elites are, you know, doing all these terrible things to you. They're saying we, the righteous, are actually going to hold them accountable, right? So to me, this is not just about, you know, which podcasts are getting lots of clicks. It's also like when we say these things, right? Like when we call out elite power and when we do our best to tell the truth about the conspiracies in plain view. Are we also connected to social movements and political parties that have that 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 are showing people a way out? And mm. that's where I think things break down. Like this is not just about media. This is about the left more broadly. And that's why, you know, when I watch Sean Fain go after, you know, the big three automakers and 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 do good left-wing ec- economic populism about going after the bosses and getting you your fair share of the profits. That's kryptonite for this stuff because it's connecting the the critique of power with tangible action that could actually improve people's lives. And I think that so long as we're just in the realm of words, like who's got the purest analysis, like you were just saying, um, it's going to be the people with the cartoon version of justice, right? Like we're going to fix it really, really easily, who are probably going to be more appealing than the people with, uh, you know, more sophisticated systemic analysis, unless it's connected with a social movement, uh, you know, and, 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 and a plan for changing people's real lives, which is why it's, you know, it was, it, it was, you know, Bannon didn't want to run Trump against Bernie, um, because that, you know, somebody who's a real economic populist, a left-wing economic populist, a, uh, um, a democratic socialist, shows the counterfeit nature of the offer of these mm. supposedly anti-elite conspiracy theories that are actually serving elites because they're a distraction machine. You make a great point in the book where you bring up Bannon and Wolf and how on the war room they had like, I forget, I forget what you called it, but they had this thing with a name that's like, here's our list of priorities. And it's like, you know, we're against mask mandates. We want, you know, there's a whole list of things. And, you know, that struck me to your point that it's always really easy to just be like, I'm against this thing. Like that's mm-hmm. the easiest mm-hmm. form of commentary that there is. This is bad. I'm against this. But it's like, okay, what are you for? And and the left, you know, I don't think has sharpened. I think Bernie was good at this, but uh, it's not yeah. common that the left is rhetorically sharp enough to have the reaction to that, like Wolf and Bannon list of things where it's like, OK, they say that. Well, we say Medicare for all and UBI and universal union rights and like whatever, you know, the list of left wing things. Well, exactly. And that's why I think leftists had a very particular um vertiginous experience of the pandemic where it coincided precisely with uh, not just that we were all locked in in, in our homes at this, those of us who are lucky enough to be part of the lockdown class. um, It's not just that, that, that we experienced something we'd never experienced before collectively of, of these kinds of extraordinary, this kind of extraordinary isolation and lockdowns. It's that we went to that from, you know, speaking for myself, that, the highest high of my political life, which was campaigning for Bernie in five states. And, you know, he just swept Nevada. And so, you know, the kind of crushing of the Bernie movement was exactly the moment when 
when when lockdown happened. Like the very last thing I did before lockdown was go on Democracy Now and try to spin to Super Tuesday uh, as <laughs> not not that bad for Bernie. But it obviously was, you know. <laughs> and like I feel like we could all picture that moment when we're you know we're we're locked in our homes or you're not locked, but we're stuck in our homes. We're in this. What is this? What is this virus? Is it coming for us? Like we're so frightened and confused, and we're watching on television the Democratic Party just bring the boot down on Bernie. Mm -hmm. Um, And the possibility of responding to this moment with those policies, with Medicare for all, with sick, you know, with paid sick leave for all, um, with a living wage for all, um, you know, COVID was a searchlight. It showed us the most exploited people in our economy. This could have been a moment where we organized for a very different kind of economy. You know, not the Davos Great Reset, but a true, you know, people's reconstruction from the disaster. And lots of folks did organize their butts off in the early days, in the early months. And I think that a lot of what we're describing as just kind of like political discombobulation and mistrust and accusations and meanness was a response to that falling apart, you know, mm. um, what, you know, our, our, like, and so a lot of this is about media. A lot of this is about, you know, the, the, the attention economy and all of that, but there's also some real world material political realities that that we that we that we need to find our our way through and map and understand if we want to get to a more stable political ground. Yeah, and how much of it ends up being that that moment when you know we watch what happened in 2016 and then we have to watch what happens in 2020 and you know the treatment of Bernie and any of his supporters by the media just the level of contempt etc. How much of that created what was effectively like a liberal derangement? that ends up feeding into exactly this direction where it's like, oh, well, I hate liberals and the Democratic Party establishment. And these people over here on the right also hate liberals and the Democratic establishment. So let's team up. It does seem that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, I mean, I, th- I think that that is, I think, I think that's part of it. And I mean, I find it frustrating in the sense that, you know, I talk to people and they're so angry about the way they've been treated by the mainstream media and by, um, you know, the Democratic Party. And it's true. It's been very unfair. But because I'm much older, you know, and been on the left for a long time, I guess I guess a little part, I just feel sort of feel like, what do you expect? Like, did you expect to be treated nicely, you know, when you have a, a political platform that is about taking down this very system. You know, I think this is mm. why Bernie is not bitter. Bernie does not expect to be treated fairly. Um, you know, he is a lifelong leftist and he has never been treated fairly. And what what you know, if you've been doing this for long enough, is that serious people have serious enemies. Um, you're never going to be thanked for trying to bring down that system by the people who are massively invested in profiting from that system. And so all you have is each other. Like all you have is the solidarity you have with one another and, and, and the kinds of networks and supports and care that can be built on the left. And when you lose that, you know, when, 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 when the left turns on itself, um, then then I think we feel just so lost. Uh, but I don't think we can expect anything else from them. I think if, if they I think we would be doing something wrong if we were being thanked for trying to take down that system. Mm. You know, and I would say that I think like right wing populism thrives in many places, including online, because I don't think it actually challenges the system. So it, mm-hmm. it's it's then possible for the Republicans to sort of fold this stuff in. You know what I mean? Oh, well, the perfect example. I mean, like, um, you know, when Silicon Valley Bank was collapsing and whatever, and there was a lot of potential systemic critique there. And then they land on like, yeah, Silicon Valley Bank is bad because they had a gay person on the board and they're too woke. Am I right? Mm -hmm. And so it they use Uh this language of corporate power critique, but then it's hyper individualized, you know, and directed at things that. You think that, you know, Wall Street cares whether they have one gay person on the board or one black person on the board or whatever. Like, that's so inconsequential to the work that they're actually doing. But, um, you know, so if you target these individuals or these very surface level critiques, yeah, it ends up effectively um, protecting the status quo. Or another another example, um, Vivek Ramaswamy, 
who, you know, we interviewed over at Breaking Points and I challenged him on a lot of different things. And he really has become one of these like internet candidates and he's on all the podcasts and like that's, you know, that's his whole bag. And he's yeah. talking about the climate change, uh, the climate agenda hoax or whatever. And yeah. it's the same thing. He uses this language like, oh, he's really challenging the system by caping for fossil fuel interests. <laughs> like yeah. that makes no sense. But yeah. he's using this language of, you know, they don't want to want you to know the truth about climate change. And at Davos, they really want to green the whole world. It's like, no, they don't. They want to protect the status the quo, which yeah. is what you're doing. But the thing is, they are frauds. They are counterfeits. It is absurd. It's an absurd cosplaying of being anti-establishment, like Trump himself, right? Um, but and it's only possible if the left is weak. Like as soon as there is a strong left that is connected to a base building project um, yeah. and is actually actually has a plan for redistributing wealth very materially, um, the, the, all of this cosplaying just looks at, as absurd as it is. And yeah. it, it's only when there is a vacuum. Politics hates a vacuum. And if and, and if it isn't being filled with a radical, hopeful project, it is going to be filled with all of these various kinds of counterfeits who are seeming like they're blowing the whistle. I mean, he, he also, um, you know, has talked like he talks about 9-11, um, you know, he being I don't know if he has specifically said well, he talks about how the U.S. was lied into war with Iraq. Absolutely true, right? But then his message is never trust the government, um, which you know we should we should certainly not take the government's word on on anything. But the point is, this fits perfectly with an agenda of, of dismantling the administrative state, of massive cutbacks, austerity, deregulation. Yeah. As you you know, the example that you're giving, Crystal, of of um, you know going after you know woke capitalism. What they want is the most radical deregulated capitalism yes. that will ravage the working class, right? Yes. Yeah. And they can only get away with this if there is not an organized working class that is that is showing the, the public in, um, what it actually means to fight for working people um, and stand up to bosses in a real way. And that's why it matters when you have these big strikes and the media can't ignore it, right? Yeah. You know, they're never going to cover it unless there's an economic disruption uh, and there's no choice. And then suddenly Sean Fain has a megaphone and thank God, because he is doing more to counter uh, what we're just, the, these counterfeits, you know, than, uh, you know, an army of content moderators, fact checkers, you know, yeah. uh, any of the other things that have been proposed to control conspiracy culture. So true. And, you know, so they're, they're framing that commitment to basically like anarcho-capitalism, complete unfettered laissez-faire capitalism. They're acting like that's anti-establishment. <laughs> that is like right. the most establishment thing you could ever think of. And to your point, I do see now for the first time in a very long time, it does look like Sean Fain is in some ways filling that void as a union leader. And I mean, Trump was virtue signaling like he's for the auto workers and he was going to you know, walk the picket line with him. That's not what he's doing. And Sean Fain released a statement basically being like, we're in this to combat people like Trump yeah. and the billionaire class. Basically, yeah. TLDR, like, yeah. fuck you. Yeah, no. exactly. That, <laughs> right. that was the gist of it, yeah. Um, okay. You know, to flip this on its head, um, and I don't know if I believe this, but let me put, let me posit this mm -hmm. to you, Naomi. Do you think that the fact that the right has felt compelled to at least use the language of corporate power and, you know, being pro-worker, et cetera, is a sort of victory? And give me a second to explain this theory, because, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that has enabled and emboldened workers in this moment is that the fact that you have historic levels of support for unions, public support for unions is huge. Public support for every one of these strikes has been absolutely overwhelming. And I think, you know, part of that is because Republicans can no longer fully deny that there's a problem with corporate power, that things have become unbalanced. And so mm -hmm. they've had to come up with this whole kabuki dance that mm -hmm. is in danger of being, you know, really exposed when you have something like Sean Fain and you're having to be asked questions like Donald Trump was by Kristen Walker of, hey, whose side are you on? So is it in a sense, you know, a sign of potential progress that they felt like they've even had to make these rhetorical concessions to the critiques that we've had for a long time? Look, I think we should thank them for doing our market research for us. They are <laughs> is it, We have proof of concept that these are very popular ideas, that people are indeed um, enraged with elites. 
But the problem is that, you know, historically in, in these moments when the system is just manifestly failing the majority of people, um, which is, you know, the main reason why uh, the, these, these sort of this sense of these plots is, is surging. It's because people can't afford to pay their grocery bills. They are getting screwed um, uh, over their health care bills. They're carrying massive debt. They can't afford homes. They can't afford rent. Um, so and. And we don't do political education in this country, let alone economic education in this country. You know, at school, people learn that capitalism is the best possible system. It's a wonderful meritocracy. If you if you work hard, you, you shall be rewarded. All the benefits are because of you and anybody who is losing in the system, it's their fault. Um, so, you know, if you're told that capitalism is sunshine and rainbows and freedom, then when the system totally fails you, you are very vulnerable to people who say, well, it's the Jews, it's or the globalists, which is code for the Jews, um, you know, or it's this, it's it's just these three guys who, if we could, you know, bring them up on war crimes trials, we would everything would be fine and we would have good capitalism again. Um, you know, or there's actually a robust left with a political plan that takes that anger and directs it in a in towards a constructive project. But it's 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 a volatile moment. You know, this anger and this 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 this, this disillusionment and uh, is going to go either left or right. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think the 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 onus on the left to get its act together. Um, you know, and to, to, you know, to build robust coalitions across differences, to weave movements together, it is incredibly urgent because every victory for the fascist right throughout history is also a story of left fracture, sectarianism, and refusal to make strategic alliances on the anti-fascist left. So um, last question for you, for people who are watching this and, you know, really grooving with what you're saying, like, what is your advice for how to approach your own version of the doppelganger that's out there, the shadow world, yeah. the mirror world, whatever, like engage, not engage, react to it, don't react to it. How do we move forward? You know, I, I, so much of this is about how hard it is to carry the weight of this political moment. I think it's easier to engage in these um, sort of tit for tat debates with, with the, with the right um, to be against whatever they're for, to feel virtuous compared to them or these other kinds of doppelganging that I, that I, that I write about the way we perform our digital versions of ourselves, perfect ourselves, optimize ourselves, imagine that, you know, by having like the perfect brand out there, we could survive these roiling capitalist seas all on our own. I mean, my advice is very simple. It's like, we have to get out of our own way and find each other. Um, uh, the self in our culture is just taking up too much space. This idea mm. of the perfected individual self or, or mm. in just our individual identity group, um, it's too small for the forces that we're up against to surging authoritarianism, just a hoovering of wealth upwards. And of course, the climate crisis banging down all of our doors. So, you know, we need to organize whether, uh, you know, it's in our neighborhoods and our workplaces um, as tenants, you know, there's all kinds as debtors, there are all kinds of new uh, organizing models coming out. Some of them are old. Um, the main thing we need to understand is we are not going to be able to do this on our own. Um, we have to find one another. Yeah, I think that's well said. Well, you said the book, Doppelganger, you said it's off-brand for you. But since you're like the anti-brand lady, maybe being off-brand is actually on-brand for you. Yeah. So and again, <laughs> it's I a great book. Highly, Either highly way. recommend it. <laughs> highly recommend this book. Crystal and I are currently reading it. We're on chapter 10. Very, very thought-provoking. It's kind mm -hmm. of amazing how many parallels we see to our world while reading it. You know, she oh, just yeah. happens to have a particularly unique and terrible case of the doppelganger everyone, syndrome. Where, everyone will see themselves in this book in some ways, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. But it, I mean, Naomi Wolf. I guess my <laughs> final question is, have you ever, like, talked to her? Or will you ever <laughs> talk to her? Like, I know it's a random one, but bear with me. Mm. See, so you have to get to the end of the book. Oh! Uh, okay, oh no spoilers, God. no spoilers. No spoilers, all right. Everybody get the book too, I promise you, you'll enjoy it. Naomi Klein, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, by the way, plug anything you'd like to plug. Yeah, tell I don't know people if you're where to get the book. And Twitter slash X, your yeah, book, Yeah, all whatever. that good stuff. Yeah. Oh God, it's all such sewage. I'm not gonna plug anything. <laughs> Join a picket line. This was such a this was such a pleasure to speak with you both. Thank you so much. Thank Take you care. very thank much. Thank you. We appreciate nice it. Nice chatting with you too. Nice chatting you. Take care, have a great day.
All right. So that was Naomi Klein. Yes. Um, I lived in terror in that segment that I was going to call her the wrong Naomi. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. It's funny because I really never had a problem with it. I never did. I always knew Na- of Naomi Klein first. Yeah. And, and I knew she's the shock doctrine lady. Yeah. And I knew she's super smart. And so she stuck with me. I know what she looks like. I never had the problem. And then later on, this freak came into my consciousness, Naomi Wolf. And I was like, who is this loser? Yeah, well, I had no awareness of Naomi Wolf in the, like, you know, beauty myth, like, Clinton era, yeah, I didn't know about democratic that. I didn't know about that, yeah. stuff. So I think our association is a little bit different. But just because... She uses, you know, both names are so omnipresent in the book. I was terrified in my mind would just like accidentally switch them up. So, yeah. yeah. So, but, you know, here's an interesting thing to discuss, Crystal's like she, if Naomi Klein was committed to the principle that you and I try to abide by, which is like, don't, don't swim in the cesspool, right? Like, don't look at your mentions. Don't like, I basically use Twitter as a one way street. Yeah, I'm saying this. You guys can react to it and say whatever the hell you want. I don't care. But I'm saying this, right? Yeah. And she seems like one of the reasons this impacted her colossally is because she was swimming in the cesspool, scrolling through her mentions, seeing that people are like, oh, you sell out. You look at what you've become. You're horrible. And then other people being like, you're so based for calling out the microchip queen. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like if she never engaged, then we wouldn't have had this wonderful piece of art. Yeah. So thank you for swimming in the cesspool so that we can enjoy thinking about all of these things because she does really use it as a journey for exploring this one peculiar aspect of our politics that, you know, it, I feel like in terms of the overall American mainstream, it's not dominant. Like I think about the fact the Trump candidates and stop the steal and all this stuff was a massive electoral liability for them last time around. So it's not like the kooky conspiracy stuff has helped the Republican Party, but it has become very prominent in the Republican Party in particular. And uh, this was really underscored for me when uh, Breaking Points did this focus group uh, with regular everyday Republican voters in New Hampshire who are going to vote in the primary. Some of them were Trump people, some of them were not. And they almost all were like, yes, pandemic. Yes, Democrats are going to use the uh, new COVID pandemic to rig the next election, just like they did the last one. And that really brought home for me how widespread what she describes as conspiracy culture is. And I like the way she describes it because there's always a risk of sounding superior, like contemptful, sneering, whatever, when you're talking about this stuff, that they get they don't get the facts right, but they get the feelings right. And I think that that speaks to a lot of what's going on. Yeah, I think that's 100% accurate. And I also like that phrase. They don't get the facts right, but they get the feelings right. But like, you know, we've had many conversations about how to deal with this. Yeah. Right. Because the only thing I could think of, like they say in court, truth is always a defense is to just tell the truth and be like, look, it's the only thing you can do. And conspiracies in general, it's complicated. It's messy. You know, the Tuskegee experiments are real. Operation Northwoods is real. Real. Jeffrey Epstein, that's real. You know, JFK, the majority of Americans, I think, correctly believe he wasn't killed by one lone gunman. And it goes deeper that there's all these things that are like, yeah, that's true. The problem is, uh, you know, it doesn't, you can take a couple steps further and all of a sudden you look like an idiot. You know what I mean? Just because the some earth conspiracies are real doesn't, doesn't mean, mean every conspiracy real. is real. Yeah. And then to your point, you got these normie voters in New Hampshire, these normie Republican voters who are almost universally all in on the pandemic. And like, yeah, of course, Joe Biden and the Democrats used COVID to steal the last election. And it's like, you look at that and you're like, Jesus Christ, in some ways this has permeated reality. But, yeah. but like you, I tend to think that, especially on that issue, that is relegated to the right-wing base, to the Republican base, whereas most normies don't even think about it anymore. That's why when you look at polling overall, COVID is actually towards the bottom in terms of what people are concerned about, right? It's a very unique subset of voters when you go for like Republican primary voters in New Hampshire in the year of our Lord 2023, right? Yeah. And so I think there's a little bit of a disconnect there. But, you know, to your point, there's also a lot of, energy around these particular things online. And I feel like to certain people who are might be weaker willed, they will just follow the the noise. Like if I say this thing, I get the Pavlovian positive response from the audience. Mm. So I guess I'll go in that direction. Yeah. And we've all experienced to one extent or another this whole doppelganger idea. I mean you could argue that I'm kind of a doppelganger of the OG in this space who is Jank Uger. 
mm. right? And I would be sort of considered like second generation uh, YouTube political commentator. He'd be first generation. Mm. And then, you know, after me, there's a whole nother group of probably third generation, you can call it. And many of them are either molded in uh, the style or the format of Jank or myself. And then you see the split between ones that you look at and you're like, I'm proud of that person. They're doing good work. And others that you look at and you're like, what the fuck happened to you? They, they do the, the mirror world, the funhouse mirror version of what you're saying. They yeah. take it to these preposterous places. And it's like, I hope people don't think that that's what I think, because it's not. And that's exactly what Naomi Klein is dealing with. Right. Where you're looking at this woman who took, her name is Naomi Wolf. Your name is Naomi Klein. She took the framework of the shock doctrine, which is correct, and ac an academic idea that she came up with, which was brilliant about how, you, you know, you take crises and elites exploit them for unpopular agendas that they've always wanted to do. I mean, we knew the war in Iraq was that completely. Yeah. Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11, but they used that because they already wanted to invade Iraq. They already had the plans. And so they used this as an excuse to go into Iraq and all the war profiteering and everything. This academic framework. And then this psycho conspiracy theorist on the far right comes in and she's like, what if I said... Any kind of basic health measures for COVID actually equals the exact same thing. And it, and poor Naomi's looking at this like, Jesus Christ, what's going on here? Right. And then when Naomi Wolf starts to surpass Naomi Klein in terms of prominence, she's like, what am I supposed to do about this? Mm -hmm. Do I fight it? Do I go out there and say, debunk this woman and say, here's all the ways she's wrong? Do I ignore it? Do I split the difference? Yeah. Like, what do I do? And, and it she, all culminated in this wonderful book. Yes. And she tried a few of those different tactics yeah. that she, mm -hmm. she goes through. I appreciated and um, am, am glad that she brought up the point of the auto worker strikes and how all of these like workers movements and, you know, the the rise and resurgence of the labor movement is a really critical antidote to what's going on because, yeah, it's and I said this on Breaking Points today, it really provides some clarity. Like, these are people who are actually standing in solidarity and actually genuinely challenging corporate power. So where are you on that issue? And it really provides a sense of, okay, whose side are you actually on? You don't get to do this whole dance about, well, corp uh, corporate wokeness and this person's on the board or whatever. No. Do you back the workers against the bosses or do you not? And I think she's right that that sort of clarity and, you know, actual tangible movements in the real world, like, I think that is actually the only thing that moves the needle on any of this stuff. I mean, I end. think it exposes some anti-establishment leaders on the right as total frauds. I think that's Absolutely. true. But also at the same time, I'm slightly more pessimistic than you in the sense that it's less sexy to talk about, like, union workers and a strike and they're raising their pay. I don't 46%. agree. I don't Versus agree. Versus you got this whole sexy global conspiracy theory where they're behind the scenes and they're taking blood from babies and taking adrenochrome. It's like there's a reason why mm -hmm. it almost becomes its own subculture in like and of a itself. Like a spy novel or something. Yeah, yeah, where they think like, I'm the only one who knows the real truth, bro. And well, that so was, that kind of spreads. You that know? was part of the QAnon appeal was like, right. you mm -hmm. felt like you were part of uncovering yeah. these breadcrumbs and this truth and like you were part of this band that understood the real truth of what was going on. But will the fever break eventually? Because I could say, you know, when I was very young and first on the internet, I was dabbling in the 9-11 conspiracy theories and it was it was like it was so like intriguing and sexy and you'd watch these documentaries where they're like did you know the building fell at free fall speed so if you like drop a pool ball from the top of the building it would have landed at the same time that the actual building landed when it crashed which means there was no resistance when the floor fell from floor to floor you think you know all these like scientific facts about the shit and it's like bro i'm like 16 Right? Yeah. I've never paid a goddamn bill in my life and I figured out like what happened in the worst terror attack on US soil in history, right? And it's like at some point the fever kind of breaks, you know? And so I, I think that like anything online, it comes in waves. There's waves of various ideologies and various, uh, you know, positions. And um, just like we've seen this now with wokeness, wokeness is sort of, we've hit peak wokeness. Yeah. It's a wrap on the they whole thing. They just like thing. stop talking about it. It's kind of hilarious. So everything, there's a season for everything and yeah. it'll come and go. Yeah. I, I guess to sound my note of pessimism, so much of this is driven by like tech oligarchs and algorithms and what gets eyeballs and what gets outrage and whatever. And that's just a very difficult seat to swim against. Yeah. And old, and absolute narcissist desperately trying for clout. Yeah, and there are always going to be narcissists who try of for course, clout, whether it's this group of narcissists or another group of narcissists. I will you say know? this, though. Usually, the clout-driven narcissists, they are wave riders. They don't lead waves. 
they follow where the wave goes. And that can only last for so long because you're not a visionary. You're not a leader. You're just like a little poodle trying to follow what's popular. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think eventually that fever breaks. Well, we will see. Yeah, we will see. Stay tuned. Yep, that's right. Great book, guys. Check it out. We really are enjoying it very much. Thank you, as always, for watching us, guys. Everybody do us a big favor. You know the drill with the shameless plugs. Please click like. Please subscribe. And uh, you can always check out Crystal Kyle and Friends on Substack. The link will be in the video description box below. And, um... You know, if you pay five bucks a month, you get the video of every show, you get it a day early. Everybody else can sign up for free and you get it a day later, usually on Saturdays. Uh, we don't talk to any advertisers or corporations or anything for this show. We build it through small dollar donations exclusively. So we definitely appreciate any support you would give. And of course, much love to everybody who already is supporting the show. We love you guys. We'll talk to you next week.